Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is Good Humans Podcast with me, Cooper Chapman chatting to the world's best about the inspiring stories that got them to where they are today. What's going on, you good humans? Welcome to guest episode 112 of Good Humans Podcast with a very special guest by the name of Brad Smeal. This guy is an absolute legend with one of the wildest stories you would have ever heard. A massive thank you, as always, to our sponsors, Drinker Rapper. This podcast was actually recorded over in New Zealand a few weeks back where I spent some time with Drinker Rapper hosting Mindful Mornings. These guys are all about giving back to the community, but their thing that they definitely do the best is their neuroscience drink, the brain performance drink, good for short-term brain performance and also long-term brain health. I love this stuff. I drink it every single day and see so many benefits. If you want to pick up some Drinker Rapper or learn about their science, head over to the website, drinkarepper.com. Use the code GOODHUMAN. You get a massive 25% off all of their items. You're going to love that discount. Also, if you want to get some free Drinker Rapper, all you have to do this week is post on your Instagram story this episode and tag at Drinker Rapper, at GoodHumansPod, and at Cooper Chapman. And I will be sending out two free cases of Rapper to people who share it on their story. Also, I have two to give out from last week. So the two winners from last week's free cases are the Holistic Health Hive and also Adam Looker. Two legends who have posted on their stories this week with their favorite Instagram tile from last week's episode, Nigel Beach. I'll be in contact and sending out you guys a free case of rapper. Also, I've got a very special thing for this week. So Brad Smeal, who's today's guest, has written an amazing book. He is quadriplegic, so he had to write the whole book using a stylus in his mouth. It's an incredible read. I'm on my way through it now. It's a big book, but it's... um. Yeah, just so interesting learning all about his story, way more in-depth than you will learn in today's episode. So if you enjoyed today's episode, share on your Instagram story, tag at DrinkerRapper, at Brad Smeal, at Cooper Chapman, at Good Humans Pod, and you will go in the draw to win one of two signed copies. So today's a very special week. If you post on your story, I'm going to make the person who wins the um, a rapper also win the book. So I'm going to pick two people to get sent a case of a rapper and a book um, signed by Brad Smeal, his amazing autobiography. You're going to love it. So get sharing on your Instagram. It's a great way to help us grow this podcast, and it's a really easy way for you to give back to us. Okay. Also, actually, before I get into talking about Brad, um, make sure you head over to thegoodhumanfactory.com. You can check out all the amazing stuff we're doing there, a whole range of ways to connect curious minds with simple mental health strategies. Our workshops are just, yeah, really special. So you can check out our new workshop form on the website. You can find that link in the show notes. You can apply for us to come or for me to come and speak to either your corporate group or high school. I'm doing multiple of these a week now with such incredible feedback that we're having a lot of really, really positive impact. So yeah, check out that. Also, the merch is still flying off the shelves. Plenty of winter stuff left. Use the code podcast for a big 25% off all merch over on thegoodhumanfactory.com. All right, let's get into the episode. 
Today's episode with Brad um, was one that I've been planning to do for a while. Brad's a professional wakeboarder and two of my best friends at home, Corey Tunison and Harley Clifford, are also pro wakeboarders and they told me about Brad's story and said you have to talk to him, you have to have a chat to him on your podcast, he just has such an incredible story to share. So Brad was a professional wakeboarder, I grew up in New Zealand and had one of uh, the most special careers ever. He, just before his accident, had been crowned the best trick of the year in wakeboarding. He actually was given the award, won the award after he'd had his accident, but had obviously done the trick before his accident. Brad then went to try and land the same trick for a video part, unfortunately landed wrong, broke his neck, and yeah, has been quadriplegic ever since. But it's not the accident or the wake story that really inspires me about Brad. It's the perseverance and the resilience he showed post his um, accident. He's gone on to try and still live a life enriched with amazing, amazing things, which he's truly doing. He's one of the most highly touted public speakers over in New Zealand and going to be a global speaker, I know, coming very soon. Um, he's also trying to push the limits and he wants to go skydiving. He wants to do free diving and all these amazing things to just maintain a happy, healthy life while dealing with some obvious and very massive medical issues from his accident. He is full-time in a wheelchair. He gets around by blowing in a little straw and that makes him go forward. If he sucks in the straw, he goes backwards. And if he blows just softly, he turns right. A little bit harder, he turns left. It just blows my mind the way that he still maintains a quality of life that is just so beautiful. I loved every moment of this story. If you enjoy it, please do me a huge favor. Post it on your Instagram story. You can win a signed copy of his book. You can also win a case of a rapper. This is a great episode to really push out to your community. Um, yeah, if you're enjoying this podcast, please do me a huge favor. Hit that like or subscribe button. Tell one friend about the episode if you've got some benefit out of it. And just leave us a little five-star rating if you have five seconds to spare to give us a little bit of a help. Thanks for tuning in today. Let's jump into the episode. Welcome to Good Humans Podcast. Brad Smeal, how you going, mate? Yeah, good, thank you. Nice to finally get to chat and meet face to face. I know, it's been a long time coming. We've been chatting on social media for quite some time. A few of my best friends at home, Harley Clifford, Corey Tunison, World Champ Wakeboarders, were great friends with you during your wakeboard career. So I've heard yeah. a lot about you and... um yeah, we're finally doing it. We've been talking about it for a long time and yeah, you've got plenty to tell and yeah, how you going, man? Yeah, doing good. I mean, it's uh, it's been, you know, a rough couple of years actually, like the last couple of years, just going through some medical issues and, you know, health stuff. But um, finally, you know, at least in the last few months, I've been able to get to the point of actually being up and about and um, being able to do talks and podcasts and, you know, get amongst it again. So... So that's been cool, but yeah, it's uh, definitely puts things into perspective. Like last year, I spent three quarters of the year in in bed, wow, um, just with some yeah medical issues, and surgeries, and things like that. So yeah, it's just nice to be here and yeah to be up and about. Love that. I open all my podcasts with a very simple question, something that's very important to me in the good human factory, and that is, what are you grateful for right now in your life? Well, I think I may have just answered that. Yeah, yeah I'm that's thinking a, that. While that's you're you know it. one one thing that I'm definitely grateful for um but yeah i just you know in in general i'm just grateful for the position i'm in being able to share my story openly and and be able to positive positively affect um people and influence you know whether it's the younger minds with school tours and and talks and things like that um but yeah just being able to share my story and what i've 
been through and the things I've learned and yeah I just think it's a really cool place to be in life to be able to have a story to tell and, and, a, and a really good following and people that want to hear it so yeah man well we're going to get to hear all about it today we always open Good Humans podcast with an arepa cheers this is going to be a little bit different to normal um, anyone listening can't see but um, you're quadriplegic you had a big accident wakeboarding which we're going to catch up to so I'm going to come over and give you a sip of your drink awesome. which is going to be new for me so I'm yep. going to come over Kick it off with an arepa cheers. There we go. All right, so what'd you say? Bottom lip, push down and in a little bit. Mm-hmm. How's that? That'll do. Thank you. Actually, let's go a little more. A little more, of course. Thank you, sir. We're on. I'm running back over to my seat. Had to, had to give the little bit of the instructional beforehand. Yeah, the, the I know. Amount of the times. Instruction. I mean, I've never given somebody a drink who's got quadruple. Is it quadriplegia? Do you yeah, say? I guess so. Like quadriplegia. Got? I don't say <laughs> that, ever, you know, use that term very often. But yeah. Um, but yeah, it's funny. The amount of times I end up with a drink poured down my front, just, you know, so I kind of have to like pause, give the little instructional beforehand. Mm. And, um, but it's funny the amount of things that you just take for granted, obviously. And, um and but it's yeah it's interesting throughout the journey i just find ways to make it work and just yeah whether it's a little instructional on how to feed me a drink or you know just ways to get around little hurdles and um limitations but yeah it's just part of the journey yeah well i love learning about it i've had um a few people with disabilities on the podcast from ben tudhope who's got cerebral palsy to um a few other athletes who are in wheelchairs but no one with full body i mean full body quadriplegia but quadriplegia is all limbs paraplegia is just legs yeah um there's so a common misconception as well where you get quadriplegics who are able to move their arms um and you get people online they're like no you're a paraplegic it's like oh thank you for telling me my diagnosis yeah. um but no yeah, it's it's when there's any sort of limitation to the hands or arms then it falls into quadriplegia um, you can even have, you know, there's people up and running, you know, marathons, but they're still a quadriplegic because their body is all affected. Is still affected by the injury, okay. just not to the extent of mine. So. Okay. Mm. Well, man, we're going to catch up to it because you've got a, a very inspiring story to tell. But I want to tell the story before the accident because not only are you an amazing speaker and have a crazy story to tell, you were one of the best wakeboarders in the world as well. So. My podcast runs in an interesting format compared to a lot, and we're going to basically go back to the beginning, talk about childhood, school Sweet. life, pro wakeboard career, and then we're yeah going to catch up to where we are now. So let's rewind back to the beginning. Where were you born? Family life as a kid? Siblings? What um, what do I need to know about your childhood has shaped you to who you are, let's say, up until high school? Yeah, so I was born born and bred here in Auckland. Um, you know, I had a good upbringing, great family, um, all of that sort of stuff, and I, you know, in terms of schooling and, and that sort of thing, I was, you know, I wasn't overly interested in school. Uh, I wasn't great at studying. I may have had, you know, ADHD of some sort. Like I just couldn't stay focused. Um, I just wanted to be outside, you know, playing sports and, um, and, and just learning hands-on. That was sort of my way of learning is to actually do it and make mistakes and, and, and learn it as I go as opposed to sitting in a room being told. Um, what to do but yeah enjoyed you know played rugby cricket all that sort of stuff uh got into even roller hockey and then you know as a family uh so my mum was actually one of new zealand's top water skiers when she was younger 
uh, and even went off to the States and, you know, tried pursuing a career in it until she uh, injured herself and then met my dad and then kind of took a new path. And so as a family, we'd go water skiing and, you know, biscuiting and kneeboarding and all that sort of stuff. And I, uh, I used to try to stand up on the kneeboards and then one family holiday, a friend brought a wakeboard along and uh, I tried it once and I never water skied again after that. I just was hooked on wakeboarding. And How old were you when that was? I would have been, I think I might have just turned 12. Okay, um, so it wasn't like pushed into wakeboarding as a kid, like GoPro. Like. No, I wasn't five years old like Harley. I remember yeah, my yeah. first Worlds because Harley's a fair amount younger than me. Um, and I remember the first Worlds I went to in Australia in Penrith, uh, 2003. And I met Harley there and he was, uh, he must have been only like six or seven years old. Um, but still, he was a phenom then mm-hmm. and, uh, and obviously continued on with his career to that. So... Yeah, I found wakeboarding then and just got into it. Um, a year later, I uh, so, yeah, entered my first nationals. My second nationals, I won juniors. And then after that, I stepped up into the open division, even though I was only like 14 or 15 at the time. Um, and just wanted to push myself. And, you know, I'd already won juniors, so I just thought hanging in juniors, even though I was still young enough to be there. I just, that didn't excite me. And, um so yeah, started going up against the bigger names and that's where I met, you know, the likes of Jeff Weatherall, who you know as well, and um, and just others who had taken wakeboarding overseas and taken a career in it. They kind of opened my eyes to that and uh, yeah, and then I was 17 years old, uh, left school a year early, tried going to uni just to keep my parents happy and then I didn't even make it through the first semester. I got offered a job in, uh, in the States at a wakeboard camp over there and I mean honestly the paper I was doing it was just a certificate in sport and recreation so it was kind of a bullshit paper I mean sure it can lead you to some decent careers but on its own it meant really nothing Um, so I was just like I would rather learn you know to teach wakeboarding and coach you know from the best coaches in the world which was where I was going um, than get some half-assed paper that doesn't really mean much and and mum obviously having done that journey on her on um you know doing that herself she was supportive but also quite hesitant as parents will be you know what about plan b or you know you got to have some sort of backup plan or something to fall back on but no I just I took off and went there for my first summer and won junior worlds at the end of that year and that was pretty much what yeah started me off the career back-to-back summers for 10 years after that wow yeah it just fascinates me the upbringing that you guys have when you're spending half the year in America and Florida and living that wakeboard life. Like, it's so cool. I look at Corey and Harley and just go like, such an interesting way to live. Mm. What was it like for you once you won that junior world title? That's one thing that Harley said to me. is like, yeah, you won a couple of junior world title and that was where it kicked off. Yeah. What um Once you won that junior world title, what did you think the sort of next, were you like, all right, pro wakeboarding, getting sponsors, getting... Um, yeah, the next few years of my life really going harder. Like you're on the world tour and stuff, I'm guessing. And yeah, yeah. I was, um, you know, on the junior tour at that point, or trying to be on the junior tour. And actually, uh, even after winning worlds two two years in a row in juniors, I um, there was, you know, the following year I I ended up uh, missing out on the junior pro tour, and I had in my book I talk about um, what was it, damage control, I think it's called as the chapter where I just 
basically it's injury after injury throughout one that one season from putting my back out to breaking my leg breaking my foot uh splitting my chin open like all sorts and then it was just a, a hectic um season but yeah there were struggles it wasn't like you know win a couple of junior world titles and then all the sponsors came behind me and it was all smooth running from there but uh you know it was always a challenge and i always found i was kind of a step or two behind the rest in terms of the support i was getting and even like you know as i said i had a good upbringing my parents were great really supportive but they didn't like hand me everything they yeah. didn't go out and buy us a wakeboard boat like i never had a wakeboard boat throughout my whole career um and that was something you know you're going up against kids in the states that have grown up living on the side of the lake got the boat on the end of the dock mum and dad's gas card all they have to worry about is their actual training whereas for me it's worrying about everything else just to get to the training and mm. and that sort of thing so it, yeah it was still a struggle and um but you know i was having a lot of fun along the way you know made some good friends over in the states and and actually you know when as i don't know you know if you did uh, much traveling with your surfing but like when you when you're overseas generally kiwis and aussies kind of tend to bond together and mm. uh so we had a really cool group of friends uh that we'd ride together with and push each other and it was just um yeah it's really great camaraderie that was kind of built over that time but then you know moving forward to like 2008 i uh became the fourth person in the world to land 1080. at 1080 yes, i knew about this so and that then was my next question yeah and then um uh so yeah around the 1080 that was like one of these huge moments that uh, i'd push myself toward and really uh you know i thought that was going to be the moment that would really accelerate everything get the sponsors on board um and i was the first in the world to land a regular stance 10 and the three guys who did it before me were parks Bonifay, danny half and rusty malinowski so absolute legends that i'd looked looked up to the, the whole time and i was kind of this unknown kid out in new zealand to land it and so news of it spread like wildfire and it was you know everyone in the industry was really hyped about it but uh it was in 2008 and it wasn't a great year for the economy and mm. all sponsorship budgets kind of dried up and i you know i'd even had been promised a uh you know a contract and getting on the international team with oakley but then there, they just there was crickets they didn't even follow through and then next thing i land the 1080 they answer my first phone call oh yeah buddy awesome uh, congrats blah 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 but then oh sorry you know we can't follow through with the contract so there was there was a lot of like you know big build ups and letdowns like that throughout the career, but I kind of you know obviously you look back at moments like that and um, they kind of you know they help build our resilience I guess you know if you can if you get knocked down and can you know show that you can get back up then you tend to become stronger because of it and um, so yeah there were a lot of challenges like that injuries along the way but. It's part of the journey and um, I think part of what's sort of made me into who I am today. Yeah, it's um, coming from like New Zealand being such a small economy, such a small country, it makes it so hard for you guys to cut through and then for you to even be the fourth in the world to land the 1080, the first to land that other trick, with the upbringing, like you said, you didn't have the boat on the dock, you didn't have the support, you should be so proud to have been able to achieve what you did in wakeboarding and then tell me about the um, one best trick, didn't you, for the year and that's a trick that once after yeah. brought it all apart yeah yeah and so, so um, tell me about that trick and what the build-up was to that what the um 
yeah, what what that meant to you. Yeah, so we're jumping forward to yeah, 2014. I mean, there were some other sort of, you know, firsts moments, yeah. along the way. There's, uh, you know, I did the world's first water-to-water step up where I found like a spillway that I, you know, jumped up and over. Um, and then there was, uh, you know, a few other firsts along the way. But the main one was that um, indie double tantrum to blind. So basically a indie, you know, grab indie double backflip and then a backside 180 rotation sort of like i think what would it be called like a double backside rodeo i think yeah i mean i know what a double backside it's like holding the rope coming in on your heel side and then turning your back to the wake doing a double backflip with an indie yeah and then twisting out so you have to land switch with backwards yeah backwards which you're a psycho (laughs) Uh, and it was you know it was over a mega ramp as well so this was a new direction in wakeboarding that um oh so it wasn't a wake to wake it was off a was it cable or was it yeah so on a two two 2.0 cable so and that's where cable allows us to do sort of multiple level uh riding you know you're not just limited to the flat plane of a lake you can then build you know a pond on a elevated peninsula and kind of have a land gap and up and down rails and And it's far more accessible for someone like you who doesn't have a boat and doesn't have the access to yeah a boat off the edge of your dock all the time and at that point uh so lake ronix had come about which is you know my board sponsor ronix wakeboards bought this property in florida and i was back in new zealand and i heard about it i'm like okay i'm gonna go there i'm gonna i'm gonna live there manage the place um didn't tell them that and then just went there and got to work and then got offered the position to do that and yeah, so now i had huh? yeah so now i had this um uh, you know, 2.0 cables in my backyard. I had, you know, one of only two mega ramps in the world was there in my backyard. And uh, so we got to do a lot of training on that, which was cool. And it was because I loved going big and I'd already like blown my knee out and I'd already had some injuries from just hard landings behind the boat. And so this was a way that you could go massive and then land, you know, down the landing ramp. And so kind of, you know, give us the ability to push ourselves a bit more and so that's where the you know a lot more of the double flips and stuff were coming into play, and uh, yeah, and so we'd I'd been just through practicing and I'd landed double flip over the mega ramp and then I got offered a um, an invite to Red Bull Rising High um, in Germany and so it's the only other mega ramp in the world and so me and a couple of the teammates went over to that and it was during practice that I landed the double tantrum to blind like I'd just was had my double tantrums dialed and uh my buddy brenton Priestley was just like he was there and he's just amping me up he's like go to blind you can do it blah, blah. and it only took me like four or five attempts i managed to stick it and uh and i just remember then knowing i was going to win trick of the year and there was like a, a um, goal i'd had since i even knew that that was a thing yeah and it was uh um I just, yeah, knew that was going to happen. I remember, you know, someone like Parks Bonifay being there, like just being so hyped on what I'd just done. And this is, you know, the biggest legend, biggest name in the sport. And for him to come up and tell me that I'd just landed the crazy tr- craziest trick in wakeboarding um, that had ever been done was pretty huge, you know, to hear that. And then, yeah, I won trick of the year at the Wake Awards, but unfortunately I was already in the spinal unit at that point. Um, and I had to watch my brother and, and Jeff Weather all go up and uh, accept the award for me. So, I mean, it's just the definition of bit, bittersweet right wow. there. You know, it's, um, 
gnarly. So the accident itself um, was when I was back in Florida uh, a week or so after the event. We'd actually just been filming with uh, Nitro Circus. Travis Pastrana had come out and uh, Street Bike Tommy and a bunch of the crew. And I remember I did a double flip over Travis and he was standing on the landing ramp. And um, and then it was only a few days later that, yeah, we were filming for a movie called Prime and it was our last day of filming and I just put a lot of pressure on myself because I was like, okay, I've already landed the double flip for it. But, you know, and I, all the footage needs to be done at Lake Ronix. So the, the trick in Germany wasn't going to count for that. But people knew I'd already landed that trick. So there was this expectation there that only me, I was the only one that put that expectation there, but I thought that that's what everyone would be thinking. Mm. Um, that, that you know, it needed to be the final banger for that uh, movie section. And I just, yeah, tried it over and over again and was getting closer and, you know, slipping out on it a few times and just getting a bit frustrated. And I just, you know, felt like I needed to go a bit bigger and just cut harder, pushed a bit harder off the ramp and just went way bigger than what, what I thought. And, um, yeah, with a double flip, you sort of grab and tuck. And, you know, when you tuck in, it speeds up the rotation and you can open out to slow it down. So that was like halfway through the first flip. If I open out, that was my bailout point where I was like, okay, I can still, you know, pull this back to a single flip if something felt wrong, which was also how I learned to do a double flip was just, open out early know that I've got enough time to then if I stay tucked then I could do a double and uh, it just felt wrong off the top of the ramp and I opened out but I just opened out a bit too late and knew it was going to go horribly wrong um, still had line tension you know with the, the handle holding onto the rope so I tugged really hard on that to turn the flip rotation into a spin and I almost saved it like I got my board back onto the ramp but I was 90 degrees short of actually landing the way I was supposed to. So I had my toes facing down the ramp as opposed to the nose of the board. So I basically came rolling forward uh, and I tried to tuck and roll to tuck my head and shoulders under, but it was just too late. Didn't have enough time to really get the push off with my legs to, to be able to roll. So my head went down and the top of my shoulders uh, smashed into the landing ramp and forced my head down into my chest and just exploded my c4 vertebrae and uh yeah it was all chaos from there yeah well man it's um like you said that bittersweet feeling of like achieving what you've always wanted to best trick of the year best trick ever probably done wakeboarding at that time probably still to this day well there's a few that have done it harley as well and Corey, but uh both have done it behind the boat and there's a double tantrum to buy yeah and another which is, which is me it's like the scariest trick that he's ever done yeah it's it's pretty gnarly and there's one of my old teammates as well has, has done it over a mega ramp too so yeah it's it's still up there but um no it's yeah it's a pretty pretty cool achievement yeah so let's talk about you stack this trick how much memory do you have of that day and the following days because i've spoken to a few other friends who have broken their neck no one that's ended up quadriplegic, but Sam Tate is um, Australian. Yeah, I know Sam, yeah. Yeah, legend. He's been on the podcast. Um, another pro surfer, Josh Muniz, broke his net surfing but made a full recovery. Yeah. So there's obviously a lot of different things that can happen when we break our neck, but you've obviously had a full spinal cord sever. Is that what it Not is? Not sever, or? but a full crush. Yeah. So it's sort of, you know, if you picture like 
squeezing a banana, you know, and it just like completely mushes it and crushes it, but it's still somewhat intact. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's thankful that it's not a full sever because it means, you know, there's still the possibility of, you know, things reconnecting and maybe it's better for, you know, whatever treatments might come up. And, mm. um, but yeah, it's, pretty final you know it's yeah, quite yeah. definite in terms of an injury yeah, yeah so let's talk about those following couple of weeks what was that what was that like well i mean immediately after the accident so i, I was unconscious yeah. and i woke up um and I, I like to make the joke so dean smith and uh chad sharp who actually chad and i uh a few months earlier had done a water safety course just because i was managing the property we had a lot of gnarly stuff going on out there Chad, you know, was out there every day as well. And so I figured we should probably do this just in case. And part of that was actually stabilizing a spinal cord injury in the water. Wow. Um, so Chad was there on the day and they flipped me over when they got to me. I was blue in the face, eyes wide open. You know, Dean, his first thought was that I was already dead. Um, and they had a paddleboard there with them and kind of half pulled me up on that to try to do CPR. And you know, I like to make the joke that I must have... Um, knowing one of the boys was about to put his mouth to mine because I woke up and started breathing on my own. And uh, and then, yeah, it was just tingles and, and, you know, it wasn't pain as such, but it just, yeah, couldn't feel or move anything. And I'd had an injury before where it was just whiplash and I was knocked unconscious and woke up unable to move, but it all came back within about 30 seconds. So that's immediately where was my first thought. Okay, this will come back, just stay calm. And then as time went on, it's just not, can't feel this, can't feel that, can't move anything. First responders got there, put a neck brace on me, put me on a backboard, got me in the helicopter, sent me off to hospital. And I remember one of the boys actually, um, uh, Chad was on the phone. He said something about, oh, you know, you, you probably have to bring in the, um, the helicopter. And I just turned to him. I'm like, don't you bring in that fucking helicopter. It's going to be so expensive. I had no insurance, nothing. My travel insurance had run out at that point because I'd just got a five-year visa. Yeah, okay. So it was my first time actually getting a proper visa where I can earn money. And It's hard to get travel insurance if you've got a visa like that, eh? Because normally travel insurance is like trips or like round trips and like full time. There's a limit of time that that you can can do. And so my travel insurance had run out and I was starting to look into my options over there like obamacare or whatever you know what what was the best option and uh and so yeah i had nothing at that point so i was freaking out about money um but then obviously yeah, they called it in and, and i got sent off to the hospital and went in for a, for an mri and uh and then i don't really remember like a vague recollection of a couple of the boys being there i think it was brenton and chris o maybe and uh a couple of the aussie boys and they they were there and I was just laying in the room and just going like, you know, why did I back out? You know, mm. And uh, and then there's about a week, maybe five days blank that I just do not remember. And so I'd had nine hour surgery, like two rods, a plate, 14 screws put in my neck, uh, a cadaver vertebrae from what I was told. So, you know, donated by a deceased person. Um, and and then yeah i woke you know apparently i was awake and alert during that time but i just don't remember it must have whether it was from the surgery or from the impact like trauma in general or the drugs yeah um and then yeah i woke up and it was just the darkest thoughts didn't want to be there wished my friends had left me in the lake like just couldn't comprehend or couldn't 
possibly think a life would be worth living without my physical ability and um, managed to turn that mentality around just with the support of friends and family seeing fundraisers happening and just the community rallying around me was just really what helped me switch things around and decide to fight but uh, yeah I was on a ventilator I had pneumonia um, I we were trying to wean me off the ventilator a few weeks after the accident and uh, my heart stopped on one of the occasions, the second second day trying to uh, breathe off the ventilator. And so again, yeah, that was pretty spooky. I had to be resusc- fully resuscitated and mum was in the room watching that. And that's probably one of the hardest moments to kind of recall is waking up and seeing my mum's face right there and just the, the fear in her eyes. Um, and I really struggled with that for a long time and the guilt around that and the guilt that I travel I, that I carried and um, and and that lasted for quite a long time I couldn't couldn't look her in the eyes properly like it just yeah I could see it reflecting back and it just hurt man um, so when yeah say, when you say it hurt what were some of the things going through your head like oh fuck I didn't have travel insurance or oh, fuck I'm gonna be a burden now to exactly. my family like that was it the burden feeling just going mm. what am I, what have I put these people through my family friends um, loved ones everyone it's like I'm just gonna be a, a burden on them they're, they're gonna have to be yeah like they're gonna all have to change their lives because of what I've done and um so yeah, that was that was kind of the the thoughts that were going through my head, and that that was one of the the hardest chapters to write about in my book. But actually, it's one of one of the ones I'm most proud of, in terms of what actually came through, um, mm. and how I was able to describe that that journey. Because um, I had a girlfriend at that point that which was it's funny. I won't go too too much into it, but like we'd already called it off like a week before. Oh. And then she rushed to my side because obviously it's just that yeah. fear of, you know, losing someone. Uh, and then that actually ended before I even came back to New Zealand. Um, but she was Supported. she was also someone yeah. that was there when I needed her. And, um, and uh, yeah, so I got through five weeks in the ICU, managed to start eating and uh, breathing on my own again or just at least starting with that. And then it was, I think, once I got shipped up to Shepherd Center up in Atlanta, which is a big spinal unit up there, um, only took me a couple of weeks to get off the ventilator. Then we got the pneumonia cleared, and uh, they just set me a target. They're like, "Oh, you have to do." I think it was 16 hours a day for like three or four days in a row off the ventilator, and then they put me back in the ICU to be watched, sleeping without the ventilator on, and then yeah, all they had to do was set me a goal. That was it. Like, if you can give me that target, I'll you know do everything i can to work mm. toward it but two questions what was the first thing you heard from a doctor that i guess scared you because i feel like quite often i've had <coughs> guests on that have been to hospital and doctors are so unoptimistic what sort of response do you have from the doctors once you first kind of they started talking to you about what had happened to you what the future looks like for you and how'd that affect you uh one to two percent chance of ever moving my upper limbs again no mention of walking or anything like that. So that was the first thing. Also, I thought my doctor was an absolute dickhead. Uh, he barely even, like, uh, acknowledged me. Everything was, even though I was there in the room, I was alert, I was, you know, my brain was working fine. He's saying all these things and just so brutal. 
um, and you know, saying it to my parents and and everyone around me, but not really saying it to me. And um, and I get it; they have to be realistic about it. That you know, and at the, that time, all I wanted was this bubble of positivity, a bit of compassion. Yeah. Um, but no, it was it was brutal. Um, but it was also part of what made me go, okay, well, challenge accepted. Fuck this guy. One to two percent. All right, I'll take that. You know, and see how I go with those odds. Um, but yeah, that was that was one of the things. You know, the doctors were pretty brutal. And can you explain to me why you have to be on a ventilator? It's something that I'm, I'm sure everyone listening has the same curiosity as me. And we've obviously heard a lot more the last couple of years with COVID the importance of ventilators. Why do you have to be on a ventilator? And um, yeah, what part of your injury was restricting your breathing? Yeah, so I think, what is they say? Something like C345 survive or something like that, which is basically like those are the levels of injury where you might be able to start breathing on your own again. But it, what it does is that level, you know, the higher up the spinal cord, the more it shuts down in your body. The more connected to the brain it is, yeah. Yeah, and so... Uh, with C4 level injury, you know, I've got a shoulder shrug, but nothing in my biceps or anything to move my arms. But it also, it takes away all my core strength, you know, the, the um, control around the diaphragm. Um, so my exhale is terrible. Like I, you know, if I try to cough, it's like, <laughs> like it's, wow. there's no power behind it. Uh, also, my laugh is silent now. I don't have abs squeezing sneezes like I don't tell too many jokes sneezes are like oh mousy little like so yeah it's just that all of the the muscles around you know the, the rib cage and around the the core um aren't working anymore so you then have to kind of build that up that strength again and um so yeah I was able to do that and then it's funny like where I've taken that now with like my my lungs and my ability with that. that we'll get up to that but um but yeah, it's just, again, it's something that um, it was a slow journey to get there. But then once they took that ventilator or the, the tracheotomy um, piece out of my neck and then the hole closes, just it only takes a few days. Um, and then I was just, yeah, 100% breathing on my own again. And, and also the reason you can't eat and drink while you're on a ventilator is they inflate a balloon uh, above the hole that they put in your neck so that the air just doesn't gush out through your mouth the whole time when the ventilator is trying to pump your lungs up. Okay. Um, so you can't swallow. Yeah, I couldn't. I did have anything suctioned out of my mouth, so any saliva, anything like that. You're just not allowed to swallow. And it, you were just fed through like IV or through? Yeah, just through my nose. Okay. Um, like a yeah, feeding tube and in, in through my nose. So you're up um, in Atlanta. You're in this spinal. What sort of cost did they start to anticipate? How was that to deal with without insurance? I'm sure it's probably in the millions with heli with weeks in hospital maybe yeah, not millions but i don't know what it would have come to but we got very lucky so in new zealand we've got acc which is accident compensation they help you you know if you get injured if you're traveling you've got up to six months within that period you're still covered by acc wow. outside and even if you've planned on being out of the country for more than six months you're not covered anymore so i wasn't actually going to be covered but i found this basically somewhat of a legal loophole um which meant you know because i was being paid by ronix back into my new zealand account i mean i had a taxable income in new zealand paid my acc levies and everything but like the icu stay was going to be i think it was only the first bill that came through was like 130 grand mm. 
And um, it was weird. Then we told them we didn't have insurance, and then it came back on oh, non-insurance discount. Now it's only thirty grand, which just shows how messed up the, the insurance, insurance situation. Yeah, over there, it's absolutely fucked. Um, and so we, but that got covered by Florida Medicaid, and which I was surprised. I'm like, most probably citizens don't get covered by this shit, whereas I was for some reason. So that was amazing. Um, and then the stay at uh, Shepherd Center was going to be at least 350 grand US. But, uh, and I can't remember exactly how it happened, but I think someone told me like Danny Half's sister, her partner may have known someone on the board. Basically, they was able to send a letter in and they have a couple of scholarships they give away each wow. year to be covered. And so I got a scholarship, got covered with everything. And, and the amazing thing was, you know, obviously we'd had all this money raised expecting all these ex- uh, medical bills. Um, but a lot of it got covered and so it meant that the money raised didn't just disappear into those bills Mm. and it meant it could help me build a future for myself which was amazing and I'm really grateful that I had that support to be able to do that because it's put me in a lot better situation now and um, where I'm not just constantly worrying about the costs and everything around this because there are still a lot of costs even though I am covered Yeah. yeah Let's talk about mindset now. So your book's called Owning It, the mindset that you kind of alluded to from when the doctor said you've got 1% to 2% chance, you're like, fuck this. Where do you think that mindset came from? And do you think, yeah, because I feel like some people would give up, but then there's kind of two sides of the pendulum. It sounds like you really went all in on this. You know what? What sort of quality of life can I get back? So let's talk about how that mindset kicked in and then the trip back to New Zealand and that first sort of assimilation back into life with a very very life-changing disability yeah well i mean the trip back home and and everything like all those adjustments because i had another few months in spinal unit when i got back home and then managed to move out into the community and honestly it took me about three years to the point where i i felt the positive shift um at first it was just fight 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 for everything you got go you know rehab whatever like i'm i'm gonna prove them wrong i'm gonna i'm gonna get moving again but that didn't happen um the movement didn't come back and then so there was this point where i was so focused on everything that i couldn't do everything i used to have that i you know don't have anymore uh, you know everything i'm ungrateful about with my life and i was so focused and on this that it sent me into this pretty dark depression and um i think the ability to kind of uh come back from that came from all of the um adversity throughout my career the ups and downs and injuries and setbacks and being able to push through those I think those were kind of starting to give me the tools that I needed but also the support that I had from a friend um, this woman named Susie who came in and uh, basically became somewhat of a life coach like she's a kinesiologist uh, owns the Pilates studio that I used to go to for course you know um, physical conditioning and coming back from injuries before my uh, before breaking my neck so she came in and just started coming to see me every week and we just talk about what needed to be talked about. Uh, guilt was one of them, about, you know, uh, feeling guilty around being able to look in, you know, not being able to look in mum's eyes and, you know, that sort of stuff. So we addressed things that would just come up and she was one of the main uh, reasons I was able to turn things around, just with helping me learn about things like belief systems and being present and, uh, what true acceptance is. I thought I had to accept everything I believed 
my injury meant and all these future-based fears that I thought were going to happen and oh, no woman's ever going to want me, I'm never going to have fun and adventure and blah, 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 I'm going to be a burden on everyone. And I thought I had to accept that. But I, all I had to accept is what is right here, right now, and that's, yes, I broke my neck and um, I'm in a wheelchair, but all the stuff about future, I had to remove that in order to get to a point of acceptance. And that was sort of where that turnaround point happened. And I'm like, okay, what am I grateful for? What can I do? What possibilities are there? out there for me and so that was really where things changed but I guess the the term owning it that just came from you know uh, the acceptance part again I felt even acceptance felt a little bit submissive it wasn't empowering it wasn't something that I felt I could really grab onto and um, and yeah something empowering so I and I use the analogy it's like you know before taking on acceptance it was like I was swimming against the the current in a river trying to get back to where I used to be and everything I used to have and I'm just you know I spent three years fighting swimming 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 Mm. and by that point I felt like I was drowning and acceptance is just flowing with the with the river and the direction life's taking me you know just Mm. not fighting it not focusing on what you can't do focusing on what you can do yeah just going with it and but then I was like no I need more than that I need something that I can really uh, be proud of and and kind of grab onto and so I was like okay no I'm not just going to accept this I'm going to own it um, which meant basically taking everything that my life is the good the bad the ugly and everything and just move forward with that as okay this is who I am um, but really who I am is what I have control of and so having a good idea of control you know it's not what my parents passed down to me and my genetics it's not what has happened to me in my life it's what I have control of and you know I think it comes down to three main things like uh, attitude effort and action and so you know when it comes to self-love and acceptance and and self-belief I think those are the things we need to focus on Um, because spending too much time focusing on the things out of our control is just going to drive us crazy it's going to put our mental state in conflict with our reality and um so yeah i found owning it as the phrase that just i was like okay you know what, what can i do with this life and how can i be the best version of myself that i can be and part of that was uh getting into motivational speaking sharing my story really openly and um and then obviously the journey with writing my book and sharing my my, my story openly through that very very openly <laughs> had a few messages like whoa that was a bit much and my mum like skimming over a few pages like, you know sexual encounters and stuff like that um but no it was all part of the journey of of finding myself again and finding a place where I could then feel like I can work from you know as opposed to feeling like a victim and everything's happened to me so okay let's just still bring value to the world yeah let's just kind of find a point where I can actually uh, find a good place within myself and actually, yeah, move forward and, and be of value and have some purpose and and that because I think yeah, purpose is super important. Mm. It's going to be three categories that we're going to talk about to finish. We've still got plenty of time. First one, motivational speaking, something that you're doing a lot now. What are the key takeaways? What do you what do people get out of when you come and speak to them? Is it though? Do you talk about those three words that you said before, which? 
I forgot. But attitude, yeah. effort, action. Attitude, yeah. effort, action. Let's talk about what those three mean to you and, um, yeah, what your keynote's about. Yeah, so, I mean, the keynote's basically the, you know, shortened version of what my book is. Yeah. Um, I, did, you know, talk about a little bit from before the accident, talk about the 1080, talk about how um, failing along the way is actually part of the journey to success and we need to remove the stigma around failing because it can make you too afraid to even take that first step fail forward always um, yeah and it's it's when if you fail you learn about it you keep going and um, it's only a failure if you give up exactly and so that's where I had to you know with the 1080 it took me you know hundreds if not thousands of to- tries and so you know I talk about that I talk about some of the um, the things around leadership that I learned at Lake Ronix and um, how sometimes you know a little bit of short-term sacrifice can lead to a you know um, long-term gain for us um, but then I really hone in on sort of the mental side of things and mainly it's it's around what we have control of because so many of us are trying to control things that are out of our control and you know oh like people's opinions of our of us we have no control of that like we have a bit of influence on that and that's only through our attitude our effort and our actions mm-hmm. um and so we can influence that but we have no control of it and um so for me it was about finding that i talk about depending on the audience you know if it's for younger sort of school kids then i I won't go into things like metacognition and belief systems and stuff as deeply um but i will still talk about them in terms of you know how important it is to to be aware of our thoughts and our mind and what we start believing what um you know, if if you truly believe that having a Lamborghini is going to make you happy, then A, if you don't have a Lamborghini, then you're never going to be happy. B, you're going to get to that point and you're going to realize that actually this doesn't bring happiness. It may bring short-term joy, but in terms of that baseline level of happiness that we have, um, being able to improve that, I think, comes from a really good understanding of A, what we have control of, and B, uh, what our values are and our beliefs and being able to adjust and adapt those to fit with our reality because again if we're if we expect something um, or that is so far out of reach but we expect it to happen then again we're in conflict with reality mm. um, so it's great to have goals it's great to have things to strive for but having them as ones that we can achieve along the way so you get that kind of roll-on effect. You get the confidence that comes from mm. it as opposed to constantly feeling like you're not good enough. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and that's the thing. With, if you can switch your belief systems from, okay, I'm going to be happy if I have a Lamborghini versus I'm going to be happy if I find a you know, good place within myself, like if I um, you know, uh, am able to get into a good relationship or whatever it is, like things that are actually a lot more meaningful you know, mm. you know as we get older we start to realize mm-hmm. what's a lot more important you know, like values based living rather than achievement based living and a good one that you'll like this is what my <laughs> i talk about a lot in my workshop with my gratitude stuff is my dad always said to me appreciation not expectation and it's stuck with me forever and it's we always fall into the expectation trap but the more that we can bring it back to that all right, appreciate appreciate the journey, appreciate what I've already got because we're yeah. never going to get everything we want. No. So it's like, when can you be happy with what you have? Yeah, and and that kind of, I guess, crosses over with one I use in my talks, which is um, when we're looking at what other people have, comparison is the killer of joy. Mm-hmm. Like we can't, 
base our value and our happiness on what other people have and um, if we're looking at what other people have rather than drawing comparison draw uh, inspiration or motivation mm. toward what we can do to achieve the goals we want but that whole grass is greener approach um, you know and thinking and even focusing on anyone else's grass is pointless it's not going to make our grass any greener mm. we've just got to put the work in ourselves and tend to our own lawn um, and and yeah do the work on making our grass as green as, right. grass as we green can where you water it exactly yeah. yeah next little bit i want to talk about your book i've got a copy i told you yesterday i feel terrible i haven't read it yet it's bloody long <laughs> it is daunting but the but... beautiful thing about how long it is and everyone listening has to go and buy it because i'm going to paint the picture you've got quadriplegia like you said you've got a little bit of a shoulder shrug other than that it's just your head that basically works yeah I'm trying to be like quite frank with disability. I'm learning that like you don't want to get treated differently. Like no. it, it is what it is. So yeah. paint the picture. Your arms are just sitting on your chair. The rest of your body doesn't work. You wrote your whole book with a little stick in your mouth and you wrote it yourself. I said, you, why don't yeah. you just talk to someone and get them to write it? And you said, that took away the challenge. It's one thing that I can do. Yeah. Tell me about the decision to write it yourself. Tell me how long it took you and tell me what it meant to you to write your story and be able to share it with people. Yeah. So it took me six years. Um, from start yeah, to finish and I just started writing just because I like I remember these recollections came back around the morning that I woke up after that five-week blank um, after my accident and I just it was so vivid and, and, and in my mind and there was like things like sm smells and you know like the smell of fresh brewing coffee like was one thing and the the sun beaming through the window and things like that and so I just started writing about it and um, when you say writing you're with your mouth, yeah, one letter at a time, touching on a keyboard with your little um, what stylus, yeah, 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 mouth stick stylus, and so yeah, at that time it was one key at a time, so I was like a little woodpecker, basically picking oh up my God. phone all day, and so I like had to get physio on my neck every week and yeah, on my jaw, bloody six hundred and fifty page book, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, I wrote almost half a million words for my first draft, and that's uh, the book's just I think under half of that. Um, oh and that was more that. of an indication of the fact that I have no idea how to write a book. I just dump, brain dumped my <laughs> whole story. Yeah. And, um, and so, yeah, I started writing about it. Um, and then thankfully after like a year or so, Apple updated their software so that you can do a swipe to text. So I was just swiping it. It must have doubled my word count per oh, minute. Like it's kind of one letter and just pull around. And yeah. And so that, that helped, um, speed things up and I was just kind of working away at it with the, you know I didn't even know how where it was going to end I thought maybe I'd be walking by the end of it or something but um, it was a few years later that uh, a good friend of mine's partner who is a, an editor and she actually ended up becoming my editor she reached out to a publisher and just said hey look you should check this guy out uh, I think the decision was ba came based off like my Instagram and Facebook posts and just the captions I'd write and just you know they were like okay he's can you know got a cool style of writing. I had no idea that I was any good at writing. Being honest and vulnerable. Yeah, I just you know even my English teacher would probably be stunned to know that I became a best-selling author. Um, but yeah, so then that came about. I signed the publishing deal and that's when you know we had deadlines and i must have pushed my deadline back like six or seven times i think so, you've got a pretty good not excuse but you've got yeah. a pretty good reason to and so you know then COVID happened and so and then i was on bed rest as well 
Um, and so that allowed me to really focus in on finishing it. And I got the, the first draft finished. And it took us about a year to go through pub, uh, editing and proofreading um, to get it down to what it is. And yeah, it's just one of those things that I just am really proud of, A, doing it myself um, because, yeah, I could have taken the easier option, but it was just something, a challenge I wanted to take on. And also be, how openly and, and vulnerably um, I've shared my story because it allows people to connect. You know, it's like if I, I don't know, there's so many athlete biographies are very vanilla because they are too afraid to be judged or to ruin their reputation. I honestly didn't care. I was like, I'll, you know, I talk about the fact that I used to sell weed in order to fund my Wakewood career. The fact that I used to be a bit of a womanizer and, um, and, but I had to paint that picture of the life before so that then, you know, so people understood the struggles along the way and how, you know, challenging the journey was, but then also how that related to everything afterwards, you know, when, when it came to what, what sex is like as a quadriplegic and the struggles and mental battles around that and, and challenges and, and how that actually led to me ruining the first relationship I had after the accident was because I was it not in a good place um, around, you know, intimacy and things like that. I, I was off um, the fantasy of what, like, you know, what it used to be and, and chatting online with, you know, removing the, the reality of my injury. That, to me, that fantasy felt better than what reality was. Um, and so that's, yeah, so I had to learn the hard way with that. Um, but, yeah, I just wanted to tell my my truth, to tell my story very openly and just, uh, yeah, like the biggest thing with the learnings afterwards that Susie helped me through, which she was amazing, like it um, really helping me find a, a great place within myself. I really wanted to hone in on those and almost – because, you know, some of these like self-help guru, power of now type books, they, they are a bit of a leap to get to that. You know, it's quite a guru sort of feeling. It takes a lot uh, of reflection and honesty with yourself before any of the self-help stuff works. Yeah, and it's to get to that. But I, I tried reading some of these books. I'm like, I can't connect. I can't mm. connect with this. So my one, I wanted to create these stepping stones along the way to so take people on that journey a bit, uh, a bit easier. Um and really, I just wanted people to learn what I've learned without going through what I've been through. And mm. obviously, you know, you can't learn it to the full extent um, without the experience. But to be able to start to and, and to get some of those um, tools, I guess, for I think the main thing is for me, it's like it is a, con it's a continual journey. Mm. Uh, mental health is a continual journey. It's not something you ever get to the point of, yes, I'm, you know, uh, completely happy and, and everything's going to be great from here on out we'll always come across struggles we'll always um, battle with things and for me it's just having little reminders it's like a little notification that pops up on your phone if I feel a certain way I'm aware of it and then I can recruit the tool that I've learned and mm. then I can get over that thing a lot quicker um, it's not like adversity doesn't happen anymore it's just i'm better at dealing with it yeah so i want wanted to yeah provide the tools for everyone um, um to take away i love that and i think my definition and i think this should be the definition of <clears throat> good mental health is just your ability to bounce back from those hard times it's not avoiding hard times mm. it's having the capacity to absorb reflect assess your situation 
and make action yeah. like your three um, words go, which I've forgotten again, but I remember the last one was action. Yeah. Attitude, effort, action. Attitude, yeah. effort, action. It's, yeah, our attitude towards the situation, how much effort we're willing to research and look yeah. for solutions and then actually actioning it and staying disciplined to do it. Yeah. Whereas most people run into a situation and become the victim, put the blame on, find the excuses. Yeah. But it's like what, not what's happened to me, it's how can I respond to it? And it sounds like mm-hmm. your situation has evolved from that resentment, that what am I going to do with my life? Like this is fucked to, mm-hmm. okay, what can I do? Yeah, and I mean, it's really inspiring to see. Thanks, man. And it's, um, you know, life's still difficult. It's, uh, you oh. know, it's challenging every day, but it's, you know, I'm, I feel like I'm at a good place where I can, I can deal with that and bring things back to what I can control. And, um, and just that whole victim mindset, you know, it, the, the thing I like is, you know, if we own something, we can fix it. Mm. If we push it away and it's not ours, then we can't do anything about yeah. it. So I think that's one of the really important things. I just hated that idea of being a victim and things being out of my control and things happening to me. So yeah, yeah. man, and it's so cool. Like now, this is the last bit I want to talk about. What you're up to, some of the goals you've got going. Before I do that, I want to me kind of explain it first, but then you explain it. Yeah, your wheelchair and how you get around is fucking incredible. So can you explain how you're, because people are probably like, oh, someone pushes him around in his wheelchair. You've got an electric wheelchair that you operate yourself with just your mouth yeah, and your neck and your head. Can you explain how it works? You've got a little tube that you blow and suck into that turns you left and right, speeds you up, reverses you. Yeah. It's fucking cool. So can it's called a sip and puff control. So it's, it's actually more commonly used in the States, whereas when I came back to New Zealand with it, there weren't many people using them here, whereas now... I guess because I go to the spinal unit and I do, you know, um, volunteer peer support work there, a lot of the other patients that are coming out with my level of injury are now using a sip and puff control because they can see how it works and Mm. they can see the benefits versus like a head-driven thing where, I don't know, it just doesn't make any sense to me. But, yeah, so if I puff hard, it drives forward and it latches forward so I don't have to keep puffing in order to drive it forward. If I puff for a longer period of time, it accelerates longer and it just keeps driving at the speed when I stop puffing. And then if I puff softly, it turns right. If I sip softly, it turns left. And then if I sip hard, it stops or slows down. But if I continually you know, sip, then it stops. Have you ever had a malfunction? Yep. <laughs> I haven't come out of my chair yet, but I've come very close. I've crashed into a few things. I put my feet through the, the, um, the wall inside the um, chiropractor's uh, rooms once. I just... It, you know, it didn't respond as quickly as I as I needed it to. And the hard thing is if I'm trying to puff softly to turn right to avoid something, Sometimes if I puff a little too hard, then I accelerate at the thing I'm trying to avoid. So that was one of the first crashes. I remember Jeff Weatherall was with me and I ended up crashing into a wall because I was, you know, I didn't puff softly enough. And um, and then I've got a head button that, you know, I, I tap the button and it um, moves to the chair chair controls where I can tilt the chair back I can raise the level of the chair up so if I'm in a crowd at a concert I can still be able to see and you know be at eye level um so yeah it's amazing the technology we've got to be able to do that yeah it's like the best time I guess in history to have had the injury you have but not what you'd wish on anyone but the last bit I want to talk about is what you've been up to now outside of obviously your speaking what your quality of life looks like there's two little bits actually I want to finish with that as a positive note. Tell me about what's been going on the last couple of years. You said you've had some challenges. Just to give people a bit of an idea of 
what you're dealing with day to day that come with the injury, obviously. Yeah, so and as, as short as possible, I can explain. Um, so obviously, you know, we all went through COVID. Uh, toward the end of that time of you know, lockdowns and everything, uh, I you know, about two years ago, I started feeling this pain, sitting pain, and it got worse and worse and worse throughout the year. We did everything to try to figure out what it was. X-rays, MRIs, CT scans. So you still have feeling and stuff below your body, you just can't move them. Yeah, it's, and it's not external feeling. So if someone touches my leg, I can't feel it. Um, but if, if something hot were to be on my leg after about 20 seconds, I could probably feel it. Okay. So there's a certain amount of internal feeling that I've got, but unfortunately most of it's negative, it's painful. It's, yeah. um, although I can feel a tiny little bit during sex and I'm grateful for that. I'll that. take that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, but, uh, but yeah, and so right as lockdowns and everything was, was ending, I end up, so I, on top of that, so colonoscopies, endoscopies, I end up doing a pill cam endoscopy where you swallow a capsule and it takes photos down your whole digestive system. We found nothing. And it wasn't until the start of last year, then I went to um, my specialist and I was just became the squeaky wheel. I was like, this is, I, I can't even sit in my wheelchair anymore. Uh, and they end up finding out that I had what's called a perianal fistula. So it's down in my lower bowel. Um, and it's basically where an infection happens and it creates a basically burrows uh, the infection burrows through the tissue and creates a new like little narrow passageway I guess from your lower bowel and I've got four of these things going off in different directions um, that they had to go in and, and clean them out and I had three surgeries I had to get a um, colostomy bag which I always I never ever wanted always tried to avoid but it was a necessity um and so yeah i spent three quarters of the year on bed rest um went through all these surgeries it's still ongoing at this point i've got another colonoscopy start next month um probably some more you know surgeries and everything to address it but yeah it's just constant pain that i've been going through and it we're just there could be a bunch of things. I had kidney surgery three days ago um, to get some kidney stones removed. Um, you know, it could be that. It could be something, yeah, something else to do with the colostomy bag and my digestive system. So very much having to explore a lot uh, mm -hmm. to try to figure out what's going on um, just to try to get back to a point of, you know, reduced pain and um, being able to, to live with that. But, you know, I've had some good things to focus on as well. Um, and I don't know if this was going to be the next question was around the breath hold stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. let's go into the breath hold and the um, potential for skydiving. And then I want to finish with, if you're willing to talk about it, how you have sex now, because I know it's going to be a great excerpt for TikTok. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, but let's go. So talk to me about breath holds and, um, yeah, getting, obviously you've got this, uh, what's the word? Fuck. Um, you love adventure. You're an yep. extreme sport athlete losing that must have been one of the hardest things but now you're still doing it in your own way with breath holds yes yeah. um, free diving and potentially skydiving coming up so yeah talk yeah about, um, so that was something i mean even obviously with uh, being on a ventilator i did do a lot of breath work to strengthen my lungs and everything afterwards um and i ended up when there was that turning point where i stopped looking at what i couldn't do and i started you know focusing on what the potential was that's where I was like, two things, skydiving, scuba diving, boom. Like those are two things that I would have a very similar experience to an able-bodied person doing it. And so I called my buddy Jeff and, uh, you know, teed that up. We actually haven't gone skydiving yet, but 
Uh, we're aiming to do it later this year. Uh, I actually came over to the Gold Coast because uh, that's where Jeff is located now and you've obviously jumped and skydived with him before. Uh, and he's now been really focusing on, because um, I went over to do it, but we weren't able to get it done. Um, but he's really focusing on being able to take people with disabilities skydiving now. So looking forward to that. But yeah, with the breath hold stuff, it got to the point, so the, the scuba dive doctor said no. He's like, if you're breathing compressed gas underwater, there's nitrogen bubbles could form in your bloodstream and possibly form on your scar tissue and block the cerebral fluid from flying. Okay. I, I, there was a lot to it. It's so basically, no it was a medical issue. He said, you know, you could go out and cowboy it and do it yourself, but you're not going to be able to go through a school without doctor's clearance, which I will not give you. Um, and But typical me finding, you know, hearing some bad news, but I'm, I find the loophole. I was like, wait, did you say it was the breathing compressed gas underwater? That was the issue. I was like, so if I hold my breath, that eliminates that medical issue. And he's like, yeah, well, you know, realize you can't swim and you'll probably drown, right? I'm like, yeah, thank you, Captain Obvious. No like, <laughs> yeah, uh, I'll figure that part out. But as long as it's the medical issue is gone. And so that's where I started practicing holding my breath again, just laying in my bed. And within like three attempts, I blew past my record from before my accident, which was like three and a half minutes. And then I kept pushing it and pushing and pushing it and I ended up like linking up with um, uh, James Fletcher. Did, um, he uh, he just sent me some, some things to practice. And it basically, it just gave me progression again. I can push myself. Yeah. I can like, you know, and even, and even something that's semi, you know, like not life-threatening as such, but it's, you know, it's on that kind of edge. Yeah, for you. Um, and then I just kept pushing and pushing and pushing and I got to the point where I could hold my breath for five minutes, 45 seconds was, was my record and kind of consistently I can hit five minutes. And so we started getting in the pool and uh, Bob Sobin, one of my old um, Wakeboard, Wakeboard buddies, he came over uh, to New Zealand and uh, him and my buddy Jesse uh, got me in the water and just practiced holding my breath. And I was just face down on the surface and they swam me a couple lengths of the pool. And, uh, and I remember hearing Bob go, oh, dude, we, I'm sure we could get you down to 100 feet deep. And that just like, that just locked in in my mind. I was like, that's the goal now. So um, since then, I've been pushing it and we got into a deep swimming pool, which is like four and a half meters. I was able to sit down there for about five minutes. And I've wow. um, now done a couple of dives outside of the pool. Uh, we did one in the spring in Florida where I ended up probably 12 meters down. Um, we were filming for a documentary project we're trying to get happening um and that was just you've got some beautiful footage from that and it was such an amazing experience to just be trusted to sit down there and that was the big thing it's like my friends are trusting me with my life and and knowing trusting that i'll give them enough time to get me back to the surface Mm -hmm. um and i love that i have that now you know it's given me a little bit of ownership of my life again and control of um of of that but also yeah just pushing myself the endorphins that come from it uh i think you know even being trapped in a wheelchair for almost nine years now it's very you know it can cause a lot of anxiety and you feel absolutely trapped uh and being able to overcome that has allowed me to overcome stressful situations uh, like you know that feeling of needing to take a breath when reality is you've still got plenty of oxygen left it's just your co2 levels in your lungs um, getting a bit too high and that's your your body wanting to 
to mm. breathe again. Um, but yeah, there's techniques around, uh, you know, uh, learning to deal with that uh, CO2 and and just mentally being able to push past that discomfort. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a goal of mine is to, um, to get to 100 feet deep somewhat on my own. Obviously have safety divers and stuff around, but yeah, that's part of the goal. And, and I just, I love that I found something that gave me progression again. It gave me something to focus on um, and something to excel at, which uh, I think is pretty cool. Man, you go. I was just going to say, and it, it just is something I love being able to be someone that can show others that you can push past these limitations that either we put on ourselves or that society puts on us and you know, whatever it might be. But just, you know, being able to overcome that and push past that is something that I'm really proud of and i love being able to kind of push that message i love that man it's um yeah it's just so cool to know that you still have that excitement and something to plan towards surely we can get you out behind the boat or on a surfboard one day of let's put it on the list when I've you actually, come to oz i've sat on a tube you have yeah and i had two of the, i had uh tyler home and danny Hart i was gonna riding, say surely we can get a board that's just strapped to the thing and slowly go behind you and well there's that I got offered. Can that. you like lift your? You can like lift your neck, so you can like look up. Yeah, and so I can look around. So there was that. That was offered to me to go and sit in this. Um, that would obviously be in the first adaptive song. wheelchair, yeah. th- adaptive wakeboard thing. I was like, no, yeah. like get fucked. I don't want to do that yeah. shit. It's like going getting a Formula One driver and telling them to sit in the passenger seat of a taxi and go, I have fun. Yeah, you know, it's just not what about the same. Surfing? But we found. You know, when we sat me in a tube and we got the boys doing tricks over me, like I just absolutely loved it. Good on you. Because it's not like we're trying to replace the thing that I lost, but it's it's putting me back in that element at least, yeah. and and you know, being able to have fun with my friends and and do that was just so rad, and I want to do it again. Let's but. make it a goal when you're in Oz. We'll try and do the boat with Harley and stuff. Yeah, do the sky and I reckon dive. we can get you, do the skydive, and I reckon we can get you, if it's just like a really small day at like Crumman, you can hold your best for bloody five minutes. If you fall yeah. off, we'll get there eventually. Push me into a wave. <laughs> yeah, I reckon. Well, even just lie on the back with you and like hug you and ride a wave. Like, yeah, well, I'm down. Let's uh, do it. We'll know, talk to you know Barney I'm, Miller. We'll I talk know to Barney. him. Barney's absolutely. I'm going to talk to Barney, and we're going to plan it. Yeah, and also summer. Sam Bloom. So Barney and Sam both adaptive surf. Uh, and both people I've connected with since the accident and just absolute legends. Yeah, so Barney's been on the pod. Love to do that. And then uh, may as well, you know, since I'm over there, we may as well just go free diving as well. Fletch Done. is there and Done. get a crew together. and Let's let's make it a goal this summer. Yeah. Epic. Keen. Something to work towards. All right, we've only got a few minutes left. By then, you can finish reading the book. I will. I would have got to chapter three. And... <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll, I I'll definitely have the book. One thing I did do, though, it is a big book. It's intimidating to look at, but I made it really reader-friendly. No, no. Because I, I'm not a – I was never a reader. But mm. then I also have to remember, I got all my wakeboard buddies that I want to read yeah, this, yeah. right? And most wakeboarders probably have a similar uh, report card, you know, would do well if they could pay attention, you know, yeah. blah, blah, blah. And so I, knowing that most of the people, like the, the wakeboard crew, aren't big readers, I wanted to make it really easy to read in the yeah. way that it's written. So Nah, I'm definitely 100% be read by the time you're out there. Sick. I, um, yeah, I'm super excited to get into it. Anyone listening right now, you've brought a couple of books for me to have, to give out. I'm going to do a little bit of a competition on social media, so keep an eye out for that. We're going to gift a few of your books. Um do we we'll go on to that last question real quick that you were going to ask around sex, right? Oh, yeah, let's do that. Yeah. Damn, I've got two questions, it's so we're right. going to go a we'll minute or two over. So real quick. tell me about, um, all right, how do you have sex now? And so, you know, with the inability to move, I guess you'd say I'm a bit of a starfish. 
um, but that's just kind of how it is, you know. And it's um, good thing is, you know, the the tools work uh, to a certain extent. Um, so basically, like I can get it up, but I can't finish in a way. Um, that is still apparently a possibility, but it's just something I guess you know, just like the movement, you just got to practice and. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I was, you know, um, I've had a few or a couple of girlfriends since the accident and um, and been able to explore that a little bit, which has been been good. But it is a, a huge mental challenge because yeah, you're sitting so there, mental. you want to reach and touch and grab and hold and move around and get amongst it and, and everything. But, uh, you know, I can't. And so I've had to learn to remove my expectation of you know based on what sex used to be um and it's more around connection now like i don't want to have sex with someone for the sake of having sex mm. because i don't get the pleasure you out of the it. intimacy yeah it's 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 connection intimacy um you know thank god i loved um you know and enjoyed giving i was about to say you're probably um, a great giver yeah Not much for receiving i can it. i can hold my breath for quite a while now too <laughs> <Snorkeler>. <laughs> uh, um but uh but yeah so that was something that you know i was really glad i was able to to still be able to do that and and uh find enjoyment and giving but also you know having that little bit of feeling um is great uh, obviously visually it's all amazing mm-hmm. enjoy that part of it um so yeah it's just adapting the uh, expe- expectations and beliefs around it and kind of focusing in on um you know just more about connection and giving and and that sort of stuff, me getting pleasure out of giving um, pleasure. And so, yeah, just kind of working toward, you know, potentially being able to finish, <laughs> I guess. Um, but, you know, when, when it comes to having kids and stuff like that, there's still, you know, other options there yeah. if that doesn't work. Um, but, yeah, so it's, I'm grateful that it's still something. Oh, I'll be honest, it's been a dry, a dry spell for several years now. Um, and that's semi you know out of choice as i said it's more about connection um i want to really be into the person that i'm you know doing it with so the right one will come when it's meant to be yeah excuse the pun (laughs) there you go (laughs) mate well this has been an incredible chat i'm so so grateful to get to see it across from you get to share your story and learn all about it i am going to read your book like i said everyone should definitely go and grab your book I'm also going to leave in the show notes. I'm sure there's a way to donate for your documentary that you said you're still trying to raise some money. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna get some crowdfunding up and running, so it's not running yet. But okay. yeah, if when just... we do, I'll share it through all the socials and everything. Awesome. Um, I'll leave all your social media, everything in the show notes. Um, people can go on, I guess, your website to book you for speaking. I'm sure you have some agencies. Yeah. Um, and yeah, man, this has just been phenomenal. Thank you so much for being so open. Thank you for being vulnerable. I've learned a lot. Um, the last question I do finish every Good Humans podcast with is the same for everyone. don't know if you've listened to any of the episodes, so you might not know what it's about to come, but what does being a good human mean to Brad Smeal? Uh I think it's it's um, knowing the, the impact that we can have on others. Like there's a, there was a kid I, I um, met a few years ago who went through a similar injury. He was quite a bit younger. Um, and his family gave me this... Um, picture was you know it had like just some words painted on it um but it said something along the lines of like never underestimate the impact that you can have on others and you know even on our worst day we can positively impact someone if we allow ourselves to and you know can be vulnerable and open and stuff so 
I think just, you know, for me, it's about having a positive impact on others, um, sharing openly and, and knowing that, um, that, yeah, we can, we can make an impact on others. And sometimes we don't even know that we are like just by going about our day, we might be, you know, an inspiration to someone. So, uh, for me, that's that's what it's about, and just growing and learning as we go, and um, yeah, just just treating people with uh, with respect and kindness, and um, yeah, having that positive impact. Mate, I absolutely love it. I'm sure you've had an incredibly positive impact on not only my audience right now, everyone who's read your book, everyone who's heard your story, and uh, yeah, the outlook you have on life is seriously infectious. So thank you so much for being a guest on Good Humans Podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, mate, and look forward to chatting again down the track. Absolutely. We will do it. Awesome. And we'll go surfing too. Hell yeah. Watch this space. There'll be some Ooh. surf footage of Brad by the end of summer. Yeah, I reckon. All right. Thanks, guys. Keen. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.